All right. Good morning. How are y'all? That was pretty good. Uh, if you thought that that good sounded a little bit more masculine than usual today, you are right about that. All right. Um, we have about 25 to 30 ladies um, out at a women's retreat right now. Um, I'm assuming they're enjoying it. I have not talked to my wife. That usually means good things, right? That she's having fun. She hasn't texted me yet. Uh, not missing Micaiah too much. So I'm assuming they're having a good time. But welcome. Uh, I'm very glad that y'all are here. Um, if you're a guest uh, and especially a single guy, make sure you come back because all the ladies are gone, okay? Let's not lie. I know that's half the reason you come to church, all right? I know that's half the reason. There are a few single ladies, that's true. But uh, if you're a single girl, though, this is your opportunity this week, okay? All the guys are left. They're not gone, all right? So find the guys without the rings and, you know, invite yourself to lunch with them. Just make sure they pay or else don't date them. They're not worth it, all right? Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and flip over to John chapter 11. Uh, we'll be there again today. It's actually our third week in John um, 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Um, if you don't own a Bible, would you please take and keep uh, that Bible? We want you to have it um, and be able to read the Word of God. And so that's our gift to you. Um, you can also follow along on your smartphone. Uh, if you have the YouVersion app, underneath the uh, tab section, you can click on Live. If you type in the Well Austin, you can follow along that way. Um, you can also uh, just type this link right into your web browser and you'll be able to follow along. There's uh, notes, all the scriptures that we'll be going through will be there today. So whatever your method is, we want you to be able to look at the word um, and see what we're teaching, make sure we're actually teaching the word of God. And so we want to provide as many ways to that as possible. Um, today we'll be finishing up John 11. Uh, we spent the past three weeks in this uh, particular chapter. And so I won't lie, because of that, this was actually a hard sermon to begin preparation for. Uh, each week, Bob and I both talked about the conclusion of John chapter 11, which happens to be the climax of the story. Okay, Lazarus is risen from the dead. And so if you've been here one of the past two weeks or grew up in church, you kind of know the end of the story. And so let's just pretend that we don't know what's happening yet. All right. Last week was a cliffhanger. Uh, Jesus is walking toward the tomb and Lazarus is dead. And let's pretend we don't know what's going on. All right. That's the only way this will have any sort of impact. So Lazarus is dead. All right, we tracking? All right, three people are, that's good. We might as well just end the sermon. All right, here we go, offering, just kidding. Um, all right, so a little bit of background. Um, Jesus heard that Lazarus was dying, okay, and he uh, purposefully therefore stayed uh, two days longer where he was. So he let his beloved friend Lazarus die. Now Jesus told his disciples that the reason he did that was for the glory of God, that people who don't know him would actually come into relationship with him, that people who do know him would grow in their relationship with him, and that God would be made much of. That was kind of the first week, right? And so he leaves his disciples, and then after two days, uh, he goes and begins to walk toward where Lazarus is. Now, uh, at that moment, Mary and Martha, who are the sisters of Lazarus, come running out to Jesus, and they both say essentially the same thing to him. They say, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't be dead. Right? If you had just been here, if you had come, then our brother would still be alive. And so there was probably a little bit of anger, if we're going to be honest with that, or at least a little bit of confusion. There's probably some mixed emotion. Jesus, why didn't you come? You, you loved him. You love us. What's going on here? And so they asked Jesus this, and we see Jesus interact intellectually with Martha, and we see Jesus interact emotionally with Mary and trying to draw them to himself even through that. Last week, Bob talked about our hope and kind of our hope game. 
engage, right? What happens when we begin to lose hope? What do we cling on to? How do we cling on to Jesus at this time? And that's what we see both Mary and Martha kind of wrestling with. And that's kind of where we left off. Jesus walks to the tomb and he begins weeping. And they say, look at how much he loved him. But then the doubters say, well, well, couldn't he, even he who, who opened the eyes of the blind, kept him from dying? And that's where we ended. And so that's where we're going to start this week. John chapter 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 38. John chapter 11, starting in verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, the phrase deeply moved uh, is a very interesting phrase. It kind of carries a a more significant connotation. Um, Outside of the Bible, uh, in the Greek language, what would happen when that phrase would be used, it would always be used for the snorting of horses, Right, So when horses get really angry and they kind of have that snorting sound, that's what that phrase actually means, deeply moved in his spirit. Okay, You got to think back in the day, uh, there was, uh, the horses were used for war. And so when you heard snorting horses, you knew that there was war or something drastic was about to happen. And so Jesus here has a, a mixture of emotion here. There's probably some anger in his spirit, right? maybe over death. Maybe over uh, all of the, the, the effects of sin that he sees taking place in his dear friends. Uh, maybe that the unbelief of the people, right? There are people there who just straight up don't believe him. No matter how many times he interacts with them, they won't believe. And he probably knows the outcome even after the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, there's probably some false empathy that Jesus is kind of feeling frustrated at, right? People aren't really truly weeping over death. They're just kind of there doing their obligation. There are so many different emotions going on here, even in Jesus's life. And so he walks up and says he's deeply moved. And then Jesus says, remove the stone. And Martha, the logical one, right, says, uh, Lord, it's gonna smell bad in there, right? Like the guy's been dead for four days, okay? Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the Egyptians would uh, mummify the bodies and uh, they would kind of preserve it well, but the Jews, what they would do is they would just put a ton of scents and spices in there to kind of mask the smell of death. And so after four days, the body decays because there's uh, no pr- uh, preservation of the body. And then when they open that door, it is probably going to smell really bad. And so Martha's just being logical. The, the word there, the Greek word is actually the word stink. She said, it's going to stink, right? It's going to smell really bad. Why would we open the door? And Jesus says, if you believe, like I told you before, you'll see the glory of God. Right, didn't I just tell you that? Now, Martha did believe in the spiritual resurrection. We talked about that last week. She actually had really good theology, if we're gonna be honest. Like she actually understood uh, 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 an implication that very few people understood at the time, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And she said, I believe that, Lord. But Jesus is about to show her an even more immediate example. He's about to show her an even more present example of death. And so uh, I want you to imagine the scene really quickly, okay? It's an extremely dramatic scene. Right, like this isn't just your normal kind of miracle. You know, a guy's blind. He says, "Boom, wake up." I mean, that's dramatic in and of itself, right? But this one, the stage is set for a lot of drama here, right? There's a ton of tension. There's some anticipation probably going on, right? Mary is sitting on the floor crying, right, weeping her eyes out. There are mourners that are playing tambourines and they're crying. There are people who are kind of murmuring and doubting Jesus and saying, "Why? Why didn't he come earlier?" Martha's arguing with him. Jesus just got done 
and weeping. Like the moment is being built up and there's a ton of anticipation about what's about to happen. And then the question is, would Jesus actually go and touch this dead man's body? Because he said, hey, remove, remove the stone. Now you got to remember, once again, in the Jewish context, if you touch a dead body, you too are defiled. Scripture says that you become unclean if you touch a dead body. And so Jesus says, remove the stone. And most people probably think, I think I know what he wants to do. Is he actually going to go do it? Right? Is he actually going to go in there? And so there are people waiting, crying, arguing. Right? This is like uh, Jerry Springer and Survivor and Days of Our Lives all mixed together in one. Right? This is dramatic. Okay? A dramatic scene. Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now listen, it took some faith for Martha to allow the stone to be rolled away, did it not? I mean, didn't it take a little bit of faith of Martha? Like, it's really easy for us to kind of dog Martha sometimes. She's the worker, right? But we see some really good theology come out of her in about 20 uh, verses earlier. And now Jesus says, hey, didn't I tell you to believe? And she does. Apparently she said, okay, move the stone then. Because the stone, it wasn't just like a man could come and move it. It took a lot of manpower to be able to move this heavy rock in front of a cave. And so Martha probably actually exhibited a little bit of faith here. Which brings us to an interesting principle behind this is that God almost always forces some of our faith out of us before he acts in our lives. God almost always forces some of our faith out of us before he actually acts in our lives. We see this all the time in scripture. Throughout Jesus's life, right, we have really weird stories like the, like the uh, Syrophoenician woman who said, Lord, could you come heal my daughter? And he said, I didn't come for the Gentiles. And she said, but, but even the Gentiles get, get the crumbs off the table, Right? You see this uh, 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 when, when the centurion man says, hey, come heal my son. And he says, I know that you have authority. Jesus always kind of waits when the woman comes and touches the fringe of his garment and she's been bleeding for 12 years. He turns around and says, who did that? Forcing her to own up, to draw some faith, right? I see it in the Old Testament and guys like Moses. Moses said, how do I know that you've called me? God says, when you're standing on this mountain, then you'll know that I called you. <laughs> What's, how's that for a sign, right? God, give me a sign. In about uh, three months, you'll be back here. That's your sign, right? Like there's, there's no, like we see this in Jeremiah. We see it in Elijah. We see it in David. We see it in Noah. We see all these examples of men where God kind of forces them to have a little bit of faith first and then he responds as a result. We also see the counter in scripture, right? We see men like Cain, who God tries to draw some faith and Cain gets mad and murders his brother. We see it in King Saul, who says, hey, wait, wait for the prophet to come. And Saul can't wait. And he disobeys over and over and over again. We see it in Israel, the nation. We see it in Adam failing the first test. So we see both the positive and the negative, right? And so if Jesus in your life is making you take a step of faith right now, realize that what he may be doing is he may be about ready to respond to act in a miraculous way in your life. Jesus may be just on the brink, just on the, uh, on the fringe of being able to act in a miraculous way. And he's asking you to step out in faith a little bit, to move the stone away, right? That you may see the glory of God. So I don't mean some weird kind of prosperity gospel or some self-glorifying, self-exalting gospel when I say that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God may want to do something to make much of himself through you. 
God may want to show himself. God may want to honor, to glorify himself, to promote himself through you. And he's wanting you to step out in faith a little bit. And so the evidence that Jesus is about God's glory, not about Martha or Mary or even Lazarus, like he does love them and this is good for them, but that's not exactly why he's doing it. He's doing it for a greater purpose for the glory of God. And he's about to prove that. He actually proves that even in his prayer, right? If you look at his prayer again, who is Jesus trying to draw attention to? Look at the prayer. Who is Jesus trying to draw attention to? To God, right? God the Father. He's not trying to draw attention to even himself, though he does know that ultimately through him would come salvation. He doesn't try to draw attention to Lazarus, doesn't try to draw attention to Mary or to Martha, but he's trying to exalt, to glorify, to make much of the Father, even in the very prayer that he's praying, that people would hear and see the miracle that goes on. And so Jesus knew this miracle was going to happen too, by the way. Right? Look at the verb structure of this sentence here. You see the verb structure there? It's past tense. I knew that you hear me. That's not how you talk in a correct sentence unless he's saying something that's a little bit deeper than what's actually there, right? Right? I knew. I already know. So apparently Jesus, when the messenger came, must have been praying, asking the father, what do you want me to do? The father probably said, hey, wait a couple of days. God, or Jesus said, I know this will be for the glory of God. He already knew that the father was going to respond. He already knew this, right? And so then why did he even pray in the first place? Because he said he wanted the people to see and to believe. Jesus is trying to draw attention to the father. He's trying to point people to the Father. And so in your own life, let me ask, what are you trying to draw or who are you trying to draw attention to? Even in your prayer life, who is it that you're trying to draw attention to? Or let me ask it this way. Are you trying to glorify yourself in your prayers to make much of yourself by the way that you're asking, requesting things from God? Do your prayers always consist of making you more happy or making much of yourself? Do your prayers always consist of some sort of self-glorification, some sort of self-satisfaction, some sort of self-prosperity, whatever it may be, because we see in Jesus' prayer the exact opposite going on here, right? Or your prayer is directed at making much of God or glorifying him or trying to make him famous. It's important to ask yourself who's on the throne of your heart, even in your prayer life. Right? We know that to be true in our actions, and we even use that verbiage sometimes, but even in our prayer life, who's on the throne in your heart? Is it you or is it God? Or is it something else, some other idol, right? Far too often in my own life, I know it's me, which is why I'm even giving that example in the first place. I, I stop praying for what God wants me to do. I don't pray, God, make me less and make you more. I almost always pray kind of self-pleasing, self-appeasing prayers, right? And we see Jesus almost always doing the opposite. The few times that he does pray, he says, but you know what, not my will, but yours, Father, He's always trying to submit to the Father and trying to glorify the Father. In his own life, make himself lesser and make God more. And so we have to ask that, right? I often pray about my needs or my wants or my desires and ultimately my glory. And so we have to be careful of this. And Jesus here is our example. Let's keep reading, verse 43. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. St. Augustine, an old theologian, uh, once said that if Jesus didn't use Lazarus' name, then everybody would have come out of their graves. I love that. <laughs> if he didn't say Lazarus, everybody else would have came out too, right? Because of the power of God. 
The voice of Christ, who is God in flesh, has an extreme amount of power. I mean, imagine this moment here, right? Remember, we just set the dramatic stage, and Jesus yells out, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus all of a sudden comes stumbling out, dead for four days, right? The, the cloth still on his face, still on his body. Jesus says, hey, unbind him, right? I mean, this guy was dead for four days, I know that we stopped imagining when we were like seven, unfortunately, right? But if we can get back into our kid imagination for a minute, just think about that. Like just stop and ponder the beauty of that, all right? Um, maybe it'd be easier uh, to imagine yourself. Maybe if you've ever been to a funeral, put yourself back in that situation. Maybe it was for someone that was a little bit distant so it didn't hit as hard. Maybe it was for someone that was really close and that you really loved, right? Like imagine that moment. And put yourself there and think about what would it look like if somebody came in and said, that person, rise up. And they rose up and started walking around again. The glory of God clearly on display, right? My dad actually used to always joke and he said that uh, he wanted me to do his funeral. And that what he wanted me to do was he wanted me to tie a string to his back. And that about halfway through my message, he wanted me to say, I miss my dad so much. Dad, raise from the dead. And I would pull the string and he would hop up, right? If that ever happened, I would literally die, okay? Um, if Jesus were there, he would have had to say, I'm sorry, Tori, you raised back up too. I should have warned you, right? Um, but Bob talked about this last week that just as all of Jesus's other miracles, just like all that we see throughout the gospel of John, this isn't a miracle just pointing to itself. John gives us some very specific miracles that happen. There aren't many throughout the book of John, but he picks them very carefully because all of them actually point to something a little bit more significant than the actual miracle itself. We see this to be true even in this story for John chapter 11 verse 4 kind of alludes to that. Verses 20 through 27 definitely alludes to that, that there's something more significant happening than just the resurrection of a man here. This miracle is almost more so a sign pointing to something even greater than what the miracle is here. And what is it a sign of? Well, let's look around scripture a little bit. Jump over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself, let's talk about Jesus, will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus will come and say, awake! And the dead will raise up, right? Go back to the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12. This isn't just a New Testament idea, but Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, says this, and many of those who sleep Sleep is always a metaphor for death in scripture. In the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Right, and so Jesus comes and says, boom, there are going to be people that awake again. There's going to be a resurrection again. And so this isn't just a singular raising, but this is the first of actually many raisings. As a matter of fact, the same God who said, let there be, and the Genesis 1, let there be light, let there be animals, let there be the sky and the sun and the moon and the trees and the animals will be the same God that says, saints arise and you will resurrect. The voice of God, the word of God, Jesus, the word, the power behind his commands, 
Even death can't stop that. Even after being dead for four days or hundreds of days or years like some of the Old Testament saints or like we will, at the voice, he'll say, rise, and we'll rise again. You will physically, literally raise, just like Jesus physically, literally rose from the dead. Lazarus died again, by the way, but Jesus never died again. There's a difference between the two. Lazarus was a sign Okay, Jesus was the fulfillment of that sign. Does that make sense? Lazarus was the sign. It was showing kind of an example. It was a foreshadow, if you will, a taste of what is to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of what came. Jesus rose again, never to die again. And so when he calls you and I up out of the grave, we too, because of substitution, because he gives us his life, we will never die again. Jesus said that in the last, in the last week's sermon, Right? He told Martha, didn't I tell you, if you believe, you will never die again. This is a sign pointing to something even greater. This is a powerful, powerful event. We will be like Jesus one day, never to die again because of his love for us if we have faith in him. Now, the, the, the trick here, if you will, the, the important point of this is that there has to be faith, though, in Christ. There has to be belief in Christ. For if Martha didn't roll that stone away, Could Jesus have still done it? Yeah, probably, right? But the faith wouldn't have been expressed. Jesus was waiting to show, hey, look, it takes some faith and then there'll be resurrection. Well, the same is true with our life. It takes faith in Christ in order to be raised again. Look over at Ephesians chapter two for me. Because obviously more than just physical, we're talking about even a spiritual resurrection. Ephesians chapter two, I'm gonna read verses one through five. It says, And you were, what's that word? Like who? Like Lazarus? In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are dead, hopeless. We are walking in our sin. But God, one of the most beautiful two words in scripture, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not alive, not kind of dead, not dying, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so some of you need to come up out of the tomb. Some of you need to come out of the tomb. Jesus is calling you And he's been calling you, I think. He is trying to draw you to himself. And my question would actually be, uh, what are you waiting for? What, What are you waiting for? Jesus is calling graciously, it says, because of his mercy, right? Not as a, you better do this or I'll smite you. That's not what the connotation of this text holds. It says he's being rich in mercy, abounding in love. He's trying to interact in your life right? You'll never have all the answers. We don't live long enough to answer them all. You'll never see all the miracles. Most of them have already been done. Maybe you'll see one or two in your own life, but you'll never see all the miracles. You'll never end up being perfect. You can't clean yourself up enough to be able to come to God. You can't be perfect enough for a perfect God. You already fell short. 
you'll never be able to understand an infinite God. I know sometimes it's hard because we don't fully understand, but do you realize we'll actually never fully understand? Would you want to fully understand? Wouldn't that mean that you are as equally, at least as knowledgeable as God, making you at least in knowledge God? (laughs) That's scary. You'll never fully understand, right? God is calling you. He's been calling you. I know it. I know that he has trying to draw you to himself. He's saying, come out and come live. Yet, often because of pride or fear, whatever it may be, we don't submit ourselves to Christ. He wants to raise you from the grave. He wants you, as Ephesians says, to have the past tense of dead. It says you were dead. Why? Because Paul's writing to people who did put their faith in Jesus. You were once dead, but he called out into your hearts and now you are alive in Christ, Paul says. He wants you to have the same experience to become alive in him. Let's keep reading in John, John chapter 11. Pick it back up in verse 45. He continues after Lazarus is risen. It says this, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The council here is the Sanhedrin. Uh, That's the highest council in Israel. It's made up of of 70 different men. And then the high priest was the 71st man. So these are like the religious studs of the day. All right, so think of like the most famous, kind of the, 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 the most well-known uh, pastors, and that's the Sanhedrin, right? The council that comes together and makes religious decision here. Except don't think about like good pastors like Matt Chandler or Tommy Nelson, all right? They're good guys. Think about like really big pastors that are some false teachers, all right? I won't name any names today because I don't want to get in trouble. That's another sermon for another time, all right? But think about them, right? All the big wigs kind of coming together and trying to figure it out. Now, listen, in verse 45, there are people that believed. And then in verse 46, it said that there are people who didn't believe. They both saw the exact same thing. They were both there. They both saw Mary laying on the floor crying, Martha arguing. They both saw Jesus call out with a voice and Lazarus come out. They all knew that he had been dead for four days. Yet one group went and believed and the other one didn't. Why? Why didn't the one group believe? Maybe it was a sense of pride, right? Maybe it was a sense of misunderstanding. They didn't really think about it long enough. They didn't try to contemplate what is going on here. Maybe it wasn't allowing their souls to wonder and to awe and to be impacted at what they actually saw there. Maybe they were people pleasers, right? They wanted to go tell the Pharisees they would rather have clout with the religious leaders than kind of follow this guy who they're not really sure of yet. So maybe they're people pleasers to some extent. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But the same is true today. There are people who see the same thing, right? They both hear a testimony and one group says, I think that Jesus is Lord and they want to follow. And another group says, I, I, I don't think so. They both hear the same sermon today or many other days see the scriptures, right? But one walks away. The other, though, by faith begins to follow and sees even more. Do you see the interesting twist in that? The one sees a couple of things and they go, I I don't think so. But the one who sees actually clings to, they begin to see more and more and more. Matter of fact, in the very next story, there's no break in chapter 12. Next week, it goes right into the next story. I bet many of these people saw Mary anoint Jesus, 
They saw Lazarus' testimony. They saw the Lord do even more things. I don't know why the two groups are different, but I think the same is true today. Let's actually finish the story. Verse 48. The Sanhedrin are talking. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. By the way, when they say our place, they don't necessarily mean uh, Israel. They mean their, their authority, their power. They're kind of more concerned with still being the high priest or still being uh, the, the priest of the time. More concerned even than what truth is. 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, or not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad, so that... Or so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly amongst the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up to the country, to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know and that they might arrest him, ultimately kill him. Now the irony in Caiaphas' statement there is actually twofold, okay? The first irony is that Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for everyone. What a great accidental prophecy, right? There are other accidental prophecies we see in scripture, but this one is probably the most significant one, right? The nation of Israel, Jesus would die for, and those who are far from God, the Gentiles at the time, or you and I today. Jesus would gather all the people. This follows the very theme of John where he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fault. I must go call them also. And Caiaphas prophesies, yeah, that's what Jesus is about to do. It's better that he die so that they may be saved. Right? He gives a great gospel prophecy that Jesus died that you may have life in him. Instead of you dying, Jesus died so that you could resurrect when you physically die. He said, you won't even die, you'll resurrect to live forever. Caiaphas gave a great prophecy here. The second irony behind this all is that uh, what Caiaphas didn't want to happen is actually exactly what happened. In Israel, between 66 and 70 AD, some false teachers rose up and they drove people away from the truth. They made Israel revolt against Rome. Rome came behind and smashed Israel to never be a nation again until 60 or so years ago. Right? I mean, the, the irony behind what he was saying is uh, that's exactly what ended up happening. And this is why you also need to be careful who you listen to. Are they pointing you to Jesus? Are they delivering the word from the actual word of God? Or are they just kind of making up decisions in their mind like Caiaphas was here? says, you know nothing at all. Now, if they had spent time looking in the scriptures, they would have realized, no, there is a Messiah to come. He is gonna die for our sins first. He would have even been able to hear his words and realize that sounds a lot like Isaiah 53, right? But because he's not rooted in the word, he leads the people astray and the nation of Israel who followed after Caiaphas's thought ended up falling, okay? Now listen, there are two sides of people here, the people who believe and those who ran away. And many of us are passively or even actively running away from Christ at times. 
We may be purposefully trying to skirt him. We may be purposely trying not to listen to what he's saying, not to allow our souls to hear him calling out or maybe even passively doing it, right? We're just kind of living life, right? We're not necessarily trying to reject God, but we're definitely not looking for him or listening for him, trying to hear his voice. And so maybe you're against God and someone invited you or coerced you to come to church today, offered you lunch afterwards, all right? That's a good friend. They love you, okay? They want you. They, they think that they have tasted a piece of life and want you to see that. Or maybe you've been seeking. Maybe you've been trying to figure out, hey, what's going on? And I want to know more about this God. And, and who is this God? And you've been trying to figure it out. Listen, I'm glad that you're here. I really am. I'm glad that you're here. And I would encourage you, keep seeking. Keep seeking. Keep trying to figure out. But I do want to ask you, why, like, why wait? If Jesus is calling into your soul, Respond. Come alive. Come alive. If the person who invited you uh, asked them, how did they come alive? When Jesus called into their soul, what did it look like? Because for some of you, I know, right, because I know some of you, you saw your friend take a dramatic change, right? You got to walk with them. But for some of you, you've met the Christian when they were seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years down the line, 20, 30 years down the line into their faith. You didn't see what it was beforehand, but I would invite you to ask them and see what is the difference. I would invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good, to come to life. Jesus is calling out for you. He says he wants all people to know him. He wants everybody to hear his voice and respond. God desires a relationship with you, the God of the universe, wants to know you intimately and wash away all of the wrong and all of the pain and the burden that you carry. He says, I want to remove that. Come have life in me. Pride often, though, stops us from coming to Christ. Our pride in ourselves. We want to do it ourselves, right? We want to fix things ourselves. We want to become good enough in and of ourselves. And I'm not trying to be funny. I'm being serious. Until you can raise yourself from the grave, I suggest that you check that pride. Or even someone else. And so maybe you can raise someone else from the grave. If you could do that, then maybe you can begin to trust in yourself. But I've never met a man to be able to do that. I've never met a woman that's able to raise themselves back up from the grave. But Jesus proved that he can do that and then offers his life to you. He offers it to you that you may have life eternal that you may feel joy and peace and love and comfort washed clean, walking in freedom, out of darkness into light, that you may be who once was no home, had no family, be adopted into the family of God, that God is now your father and Christ is now our brother. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, comforts us, produces fruit. He wants to offer that to you. Don't let pride stop that. I can't even heal like a little cut on my arm right? Yesterday I cut myself. Uh, at, that proves that my wife is not at home, okay? I was trying to uh, peel Makai an orange, and I hate the way that my hands smell after I peel an orange. So I went to cut it, and I cut myself. Why? Because I never cut oranges, all right? I have a wonderful wife who takes care of our daughter very well, all right? Then as I was prepping for the sermon last night, I was walking around my room for a second, and I sprained like my toe. It actually hurts really bad right now, okay? Now, the way I sprained my toe is I stepped on a shirt. Not like a triple X shirt either, my one and a half year old's daughter shirt, okay? Somehow I stepped on it and I hurt my foot, right? I am a living proof that I cannot raise myself from the dead because I can't even heal a cut or stop myself from being hurt, 
right? The same is true for you. If you can't do it, trust in the man who can. Trust in Jesus, who can actually raise from the grave. Trust the one who can actually heal. Jesus' voice may be calling you to him. There's a second group of people, though, those who did believe. Okay? I want to spend literally the next minute and 30 seconds encouraging you all. We're almost done here, but I want to take a piece from what, uh, what Bob will actually be teaching on next week. There are two stories that Bob will be teaching on. Mary anoints Jesus and then Jesus' triumphal entry. In the middle of that, there's this weird little part where it really quickly re-references Lazarus. I'm going to save him from having to explain that because it's kind of weird in the midst of that story. All right, and I want to look at it today. Look at what it says in chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, listen, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus's miracle became a testimony to the gospel. Because Jesus raised him from the grave, he would become a now powerful witness to the fact that Jesus can raise from the grave, that Jesus can save, that he can resurrect the body. And so if you're a Christian, you have been resurrected from the dead. That's what Ephesians said, right? You, you know that in your own life. You were born dead, yet he's given you life. You have a testimony just like Lazarus does. And so I want to ask you, is your testimony currently being an influence for the gospel? Are you pointing people to Jesus because of the testimony in your life? Are you allowing people to see the power of God in your life? Or are you hiding? Lazarus apparently was so public that even the chief priests came. And Christian tradition and Christian history actually tells us that Lazarus ended up being killed by the chief priest for his faith in Jesus because of what Jesus did. Lazarus was living out the testimony. The blind man a couple chapters ago was living out the testimony. You have a testimony. Are you living it out? Lazarus was a walking testimony. Isn't yours? I know mine is. The deadness of who I once was and the life that I now taste in Christ. I was an abusive man. Right? I would physically hurt, hit my brothers, an angry man. Right? I would always fight my friends, would be really verbally aggressive toward the women I dated. I would literally fight people I didn't even know. Right? All of a sudden, Jesus came and saved my life. Hallelujah. I had a wicked tongue. Right? I think about it. Verbal assaults all the time always making fun of people, always slandering, always trying to use my speech to build myself up, to try to get more affection toward myself, right? I always tried to tear people down with my tongue, would say wicked things, would, 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 would speak wicked things, and then Jesus came in and saved my life. I was dead. Now I'm alive. And I feel it. I see it. Everything changes. My perception on life changes. I have a testimony, just like Lazarus did. If you are walking with Jesus, you have a testimony. You may be thinking, well, I was kind of like saved when I was like three. How is that a testimony? Because somehow the power of God kept you from when you were three until today. That's a very astounding thing. Because most people I know that 
kind of started having that, ended up walking away. Yet for some reason, the Lord gripped you. That's a testimony. Because you were born dead. Babysit my daughter for a day, and you'll realize you're born in sin, right? <laughs> you'll realize that. <laughs> She's cute. She'll smack you in the face too, <laughs> right? <laughs> Jesus saves. He comes in. He gives you new life. And so I invite you, if you don't know him, he's calling your name. Would you maybe even today consider submitting yourself to Jesus, saying, you know what, I can't raise myself. Maybe you can. And learning what it means to follow him. Or if you do know Jesus, we even have a place on the communication card. You can write down an actionable thing if you want. But who or how are you living out your testimony as a way to help other people see the power of God? There's nothing like knowing Jesus. There's nothing like it. I love you guys. Let's pray. You know, I want to take a second. If you don't know who the Lord is, if if you're not 100% sure whether or not you're a Christian or not, or maybe you're sure that you're not a Christian, you know it. I would just invite you even right now, nothing weird, nothing uh, going on. I want you just to sit um, in silence for a minute and maybe ask God to reveal himself to you, to speak into your heart, to call you out, to tell you something about himself or about yourself. I want to sit in silence just for a couple minutes and allow people to do that, to try to listen for the voice of God. pray that God is speaking to you, even in this moment. I would encourage you, maybe if he did, or, or maybe if you, you want him to and you want to know him more, I would encourage you, talk to the person who brought you today. Ask them more. Ask them about their life. Just listen to their testimony, how they too were like Lazarus. I would love to hang out with you. I would love to get coffee this week. Let's talk about Jesus, the God who can raise from the dead. God, I pray too that for those of us who do know you, Jesus, who have made you the God of our lives, God, would you help us to live in a manner that displays the power of resurrection from the dead? Help our testimony to be a living witness to your power, to your strength, to your might, to your love. Jesus, I thank you that you went and died. You went, allowed sin to grip you, allowed death to, to, to defeat you for a moment that we would never lose to death again if we believe in you. 
And Jesus, because you're God, death didn't win, ultimately. Though the glimpse of it at first, we see the power of resurrection three days later when you rose from the grave never to die again. Lazarus tasted that second resurrection too. And so did Mary and so did Martha and the disciples and all who afterwards put their faith in you. Christ, we too will one day get to experience that. I thank you for that, Jesus. You are a good God. Pray that even this morning, as we worship you and, and, and take communion and remember that you poured out your blood, that you uh, got your body ripped and torn, that we may be saved, that we may have a relationship. Would you help us to worship you through that too? Thank you to be in awe and in, in, in wonder at the power of your calling, God. Thank you for saying, Tori, come out of the grave. I pray that we would worship you as a result. In your beautiful and precious name, amen.